welcome to episode 83 of The Mountainous Goatees. I am thrilled to be here today with my co-host, Coraline Ada Empke. Hi, everyone, and I am joined by one of our newer panelists, John Towers. Hi, everyone. I'm here to welcome our guest, uh, Tim Chevalier. Tim studied computer science at Wellesley College, UC Berkeley, and Portland State University. After 14 years in the software industry, including a stint working on the Rust compiler team at Mozilla, he is currently changing careers. He is a cat father and pinball player and has seen the Mountain Goats in concert 24 times. Welcome, Tim. Thanks. I thought it was called Greater Than Code. Oh, you may be right. Jessica! Oh, right. Me? I, I really like goats. We don't, do that. we don't do that anymore. That joke is so tired. So, <laughs> welcome, Tim. Um, we open every episode the exact same way, not with the greater than code title joke anymore, Jessica. But rather, <laughs> but rather with a standard question we pose to all of our guests, and that is, what is your superpower and how did you develop it? Uh, yeah, I mean, my superpower seems to be being able to keep myself from laughing. I discovered this because I was in two different improv groups where we played a game called Misty Whiskers. So people take turns either saying Misty uh, Whiskers or Whiskey Mixers, or there's a couple other phrases I forget, but the point is to mess up. Um, That's the goal. And then when you mess up, if you laugh, then you have to then run around the room waving your arms in the air and yelling. And like the goal of the game, ostensibly, is to not laugh. Although the real goal is to laugh because it's fun. But because I'm kind of a competitive person, sometimes I decided you know, I was just going to be the person who didn't laugh. And both different groups of people I've played this with, I was the only person who didn't laugh. Actually, the second time, there might have been one other person. So my superpower is being able to keep myself from laughing even when I really want to. That's similar to my superpower, which is to keep myself from crying even when I want to. <laughs> That's a, um, in ways much more useful of a skill. In our industry, certainly. Yes, exactly. So how long have you been doing improv? I've been doing it on and off for about, I don't know, three or four years. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm currently actually in a combination improv slash therapy group. Um, and the other groups I've been have just been straight up improv. So it's often funny, but not as much about trying to be funny as trying to be open and honest and all that. Are you familiar with the Neo Futurists? No. We have this acting group here in Chicago called the Neo Futurists, and they have a theater called the Neo Futurarium. And the thing with Neo Futurists plays is that you don't play a character and you don't tell made-up stories. So all of the actors have to be themselves on stage, and any dialogue has to be genuine dialogue, and any story has to be a story from their actual lives, which makes for some really poignant theater, sometimes comical and sometimes very tragic. But it's very raw, and knowing that it's all true and experiencing what the actors on stage are experiencing is really a very kind of moving experience. Sounds kind of like a podcast. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But we try to do that here to a degree. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I make shit up. <laughs> <laughs> like right then. See, I made that up about making shit up, which makes itself true. So you never actually make shit up. It's true at the time in my head, right? There's a saying, um, all stories are true while I'm listening to them. 
which I really believe. Yeah. Tim, you mentioned during the pre-show and in your bio that you're changing careers. Can you talk a little bit about your journey as a programmer and where that has taken you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was 14 years old, I wanted to be an editorial cartoonist. I couldn't really draw, but I had ideas for cartoons and I thought that, you know, I could learn how to draw. I had a pretty good attitude about that back then. I got as far as like winning second or third place in a local contest for youth who were doing editorial cartooning, uh, otherwise known as political cartooning. I'm not sure if everyone knows that term. So, uh, so not comic strips, but like single panel, usually cartoons commenting on some kind of issue, which now I have Twitter, so I don't even have to try to draw at all. But back then, we didn't have that. So in any case, I was really into that, and that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to major in journalism or sociology in college. But then that year, I started taking college classes at UMass Boston. I was a homeschooler, and that's a much longer story. But in short, I was 14, starting to take college classes in 1995, and I got access to the internet, which was not something everybody had back then. So I would go to the basement computer room in the library at UMass Boston, and they had VT220 terminals there where you could use links to browse the web, or you could use Gopher, which was still a thing then. And I got so into it. I had just been checking out issues of the Whole Earth Review from the library and reading about the early internet, reading books like The Virtual Community by Howard Rheingold. And then I got to try it out for real. And it was the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. Like just the fact that you could go on a computer and potentially talk to anybody or find out stuff that you couldn't find out in books at the library. I was stoked. And I ran across things like the Hacker's Dictionary and the Geek Code and a whole bunch of other pre-meme memes, I guess. And I was fascinated by this thing of geek culture. So I took a computer science class so that I could get the jokes. And then I found that I liked... I loved programming like i was excited about it from the the second day of that class um the professor showed us a program that drew a circle on the screen it was pascal uh using mac graphics libraries so she showed us this program and then she showed us the code and it was just calling a library function so it was you know two lines of code and i was so blown away because i thought it would have to be more complicated than that. Um, I didn't know yet about the concept of libraries and code reuse, and you could just take some code that somebody else wrote and invoke it however you wanted. So that was it for me. Like I loved the idea of abstraction, and that was what I was going to do from then on. So I majored in computer science. And then my plan was to become a computer science professor, because mostly because I had some really great professors in undergrad who really inspired me and awakened things in me and I wanted to be like them. So I went to grad school and TLDR, I ended up leaving with a master's and working um, as a software engineer. So that had never really been my plan. I had always wanted to go into academia and teach and do research, even though I didn't really know what some of those things entailed. So I kind of accidentally started working as a software engineer. And then 
as time passed, it was sort of easier to keep doing what I was already doing, um, which kind of makes it sound kind of a drag, but there were a lot of good things about it. And eventually I just decided I'd, I'd had it with the culture that, you know, I love programming. I still do. Like I'm doing, I, right now I'm preparing to teach a class in the summer for high school kids, um, an intro to programming class. So I'm trying to do some basic programming exercises myself just to kind of get a sense of how difficult they are before I assign them. So it's reminding me that I really love the work of programming, but being able to do it with other people, the people that are typically doing it right now is a different thing. Um, So it's ironic because it's the culture that had first brought me into it. I wasn't interested in computers or math. I feel like I would belong in this culture and I want to understand it. And now it's the culture that's driving me out. You said that that you don't want to program with the predominant groups that you see in this culture. Are there some people that you do like to program with? Yeah, maybe. Like It's been so difficult for me in the past five, six, more than that years to program outside work that I haven't done it. I've been doing it for my day job and nothing else. So the day jobs that I've had have been primarily working with white, cis, heterosexual men, like overwhelmingly so, partly because of the niches that I've found myself in within the industry. So because I haven't been doing any programming outside my job, I just haven't been doing it with the people that I might like to be doing it with at all. But yes, in the small amounts of experience I've had working together with people that have had life experiences of being outsiders, that's felt a whole lot better to me because it's less about proving how smart you are and more about really connecting to make something together. Working at certain big companies I could name and and smaller companies too feels like this continuous process of being around people that are trying to use programming to prove themselves as smart people, which kind of is interchangeable in this industry as being valid people of being people who are worthy of of love and attention. And this kind of leads into what I had wanted to talk about today. I want, if we could, just to talk about the values that the people you're describing have versus the values that maybe people who don't represent that majority have. And are we seeing a collision of values playing out in the public sphere in our industry? Yeah, I think so. And I think your second question is spot on that we're seeing it come out into the public um, when it was happening in sort of closed circles before. So the values, I think, and you all can chime in if you have more to add or disagree, within tech, and I often, I'm thinking of my most recent employer because that's clearest in my head, but that's far from the only place I've seen it. There's a really strong valuation of intelligence. And of course, nobody can ever say what intelligence actually means, but let's go with it for now. At this employer, I'm alluding to one of the questions that we had to answer when we were interviewing candidates was like, how would you rank this person's cognitive ability? Like, something like on a scale of one to five. I don't remember the actual scale, but the question was roughly like, okay, well, you've talked to this person for an hour, asked them some coding questions. And now what would you say about their cognitive ability? And we also had to answer the same question if we were putting in a referral, like for a friend who wanted a job. 
and especially when talking about someone you knew, it's like, what does this question mean? Like, what am I being asked for when I'm being asked to rate somebody's cognitive ability? Like, now, to me, that is not a very well-formed question because maybe there is innate ability. I don't know. I, I'm not set up to observe people like in a psychology lab where I'd be able to isolate all the other things that affect that in practice. So maybe there's some sort of thing as pure cognitive ability inside a person. But what I see more often is that what people can accomplish is so affected by their environment and also by their life experiences up till now. So that you can't change past experiences, you can change your environment. But there's so much else and it, it doesn't make sense to me to see a person as this isolated individual that has this cognitive ability, the way that a car has horsepower, like that's coming from them. And the other thing that I feel like people in tech really value is is rationality and logic. And these two things are very tied into each other because the assumption is that intelligence has to do with thinking logically and thinking rationally. Now, actually, I would say that even if you're someone who thinks intelligence can be measured, and I'm not saying I know the answer to that question, but you know, even if you do think, okay, intelligence is important and it's a thing that you can assess in people, that doesn't imply that rationality and logic are the only modes you should be thinking in because there's other kinds of intelligence too. That we, some people talk a lot about emotional intelligence. and Emotions are cognition. Yes, absolutely, um, 100%. So this word cognition you know, can include uh, emotion 100%. But I got I always got the feeling that when I was being asked to assess this quality in people, that's not what they meant. They were asking for kind of IQ test performance, even though we weren't giving an IQ test. Um, but, but like asking asking what do you think of the cognitive abilities of someone you talk to for an hour? I, I mean, then you might as well just ask them, did they agree with you? Exactly. Like does this per I think what this question was really asking, well, maybe I don't know about intent, but what people usually answered when they had to answer this question was, well, how much does this person seem like me? Because of course I am an intelligent person. And so I'm trying to gauge how much I can relate to them, how much they were on my level. And so I think, you know, that value of a certain narrow construction of intelligence and of rationality kind of constructs the way things are in the industry. And then there's a feedback loop where, you know, people that don't accept that get shut out. So it kind of just gets reinforced more and more strongly. And what I was just thinking of was, um, you know, there was a tweet yesterday or maybe a couple days ago that people have been making fun of from Jordan Peterson, well-known, horrible person, that uh, he was in apparent earnest saying, well, uh, you should get an IQ test done, and then when you apply for jobs, you should show them your IQ test results. And if they aren't floored by your, of course, extreme intelligence, because you're one of his fans and you're therefore going to score very well on the test, um, if they're not floored by this, you know that they're too stupid for you to want to work for them. Uh, like if they want an arts degree instead of an IQ test, you know that that's a bad place for you. So what everybody said in response basically was like, yes, you should absolutely do this. You should try this and it's going to be awesome. And you're totally not going to be rejected for being an insufferable blowhard. And so, you know, we were all yeah, making fun of this. That would be great. Yeah, we, it would be. That's, it's self-selection. Really right? Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. As hiring, if someone says, here's my IQ test, be impressed. That tells me exactly what I need to know about them. 
it tells me exactly what I need to know about them too. You know, if someone did this in earnest, it's like, okay, well, not a culture fit, but it's easy yeah, to make fun yeah. of this. But I but, think but there's those cultures. They, there are cultures that will consider that a fit and let absolutely. them have them. Yeah, let them have them. So it seems like it's perfect for everybody. You know, those people get sorted to where they're going to be happy and we hopefully won't have to deal with them. We all so like to be only... valued for what we value in ourselves. But we do yeah. have to deal with them because they produce software that we have to use and their values get encoded in the software because software is political. Exactly. So while this is easy to make fun of, I think there's you know a milder form of what Peterson was saying that a lot of people do seriously believe in, which is this idea of innate intelligence, measurable intelligence, and the idea that like symbolic thinking is the only thing that you ever need. And it sort of manifests itself both as, well, this is really important in programming, and therefore it should be the main thing you consider when you're evaluating people as programmers. But it also has a, I think, more toxic manifestation, which is like, this is the main form of intelligence that matters. And and really beyond that, this is the main way in which you should judge whether a person is deserving. Deserving of what? Well, of pretty much anything you care about. And I think, you know, of course there's a kind of rational, logical thinking that you need to be able to have to program. Like, And if you can't do that or if you can't learn to do it, you probably are not going to become a programmer. Like, that's a given. But the bar, I think, is a lot lower than the sort of Peterson fanboy types of people think it is. Like, sure, you need to be able to think through a problem, but I think a lot of human beings have that ability. Like, whenever I run into somebody in the world who's like, oh, I could never be a programmer, I'm not smart enough, it makes me sad, because, you know, they probably are. So you can see that as a job skill, just like, okay, well, maybe you have to be able to play a scale in order to be a musician, although there are lots of well-known musicians who say that they can't play scales. So that's probably not even a good analogy. But, you know, there's skills that you can acquire that are mediated by innate talent, sure, But then I think where that gets to be a problem is where you're saying, well, you know, people are only deserving of basic needs, of love, of respect, if they are intelligent in this way that I can't define, but I know it when I see it. And I think that is a value that is widespread among kind of in-group people in tech to the extent that, you know, I've, I've, this is an extreme example, but I've had an argument over dinner with somebody I used to work with about, like, is social inequality good or bad? And I actually thought before having this argument that this wasn't ever an argument I was going to have, that that everybody agreed that inequality was a bad thing, that the disagreements we had were about how to make sense of the information we have about, well, is there really inequality in this particular sphere or not? Like, sure, I could understand disagreements about that, but this guy was saying to me, well, as a basic value, why should we value equality? Why should we value even distribution of resources? And that is an argument you can really have with men in tech. And I think it has to do with this idea that, well, some people are just more deserving. I agree with you that it it seems ridiculous to me personally. And yet I have learned that, yes, some people value... Uh, Jonathan Haidt calls it fairness as proportionality, as in they really want people who work harder 
to get more and people who aren't worthy and maybe it's working hard or I guess in their case, maybe it's intelligence. They really want them to get less. Yes, that's right. And I have found since that there are many people who believe that. So like, and it's again, easy to point the finger at, oh, those people are wrong and they hold these beliefs that are destructive. But But if that's all we do, then we're failing at empathy. Exactly. And to be honest, you know, I have held these beliefs too. And I could say I've held them in the past, but really they're pretty deeply internalized. And while I can be consciously aware of them now, that doesn't mean I'm not acting on them. So like I was really raised to see myself as valuable because of my intelligence, academic performance, external achievements, all of those things, uh, the things having to do with the mind rather than with the body. And, you know, I grew up not understanding even that there was anything I could be valued for other than the things that I did. And it was really important to me as a teenager and a person in my 20s to be smarter than other people, like to be seen as smart, to prove that I was smart. All of these things were so important to me because I literally didn't know how else I could be valued and how else I could get the things that I needed. So going back to talking about how I got started in this field, it's like, it's a mix of, I really had this innate joy in programming and in making something and having the computer tell me right away if it did what I thought it did or not, which is a very positive thing, um, which is, I think, the joy of doing anything creative. But also, like, choosing this field was, for me, a way of chasing this idea of well, maybe I will be able to prove myself. Like maybe I will be able to show that I am good enough and show that through the things I create and then having other people say, hey, those things are good. So I'm not free from this kind of thinking that I am saying is toxic. Like it's something I was brought up with and something that really shaped a lot of my path. Which brings us right back to the original question that you said we wanted to talk about, which is great because I find it super fascinating. What emotional needs are people trying to fulfill by programming? Yeah. So I was lying on the floor one night listening to Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen and thinking about disappointment and my own path and, and my feeling of I'm giving up on this career that I've spent a lot of my life so far building. And I was also thinking about a debate on Twitter that had just been happening about the word craftsman. And this is sort of something that I think we've all seen so many times. Man says that a word is gender neutral. Women and other people say, no, I don't think it's gender neutral and I feel excluded. Man comes back and says, well, you were wrong. And the, <laughs> you know, there's this term software craftsmanship that I think has been around for a while and referring to a certain set of principles and practices in making software, none of which I necessarily disagree with. I, the ones I know about seem mostly pretty sensible to me. But the particular point of contention was about the name for it. And names are really important. Like people invest a lot in names. So I think when the fact that people got worked up about this word craftsman is like, okay, there's a sign there that something is interesting and we should be looking more closely. Because yes, you can say like, okay, it's sexist to demand that women be okay with being called men. 
A hundred percent. Absolutely. So there's that. And, but I think we who are talking here all understand that, but like, there's another level at which like, okay, like one of the things that plays into this sexism, that desire to have a label for a particular kind of identity and beyond the specific word that you use this process where programming is not just a job or an activity because it can be a hobby and that's fine, but an identity. And I have also been that person in my life. I've been a person that constructed my identity around programming or around being a geek or a nerd. And I was talking in the pre-show about the word hacker and what that used to mean to me. And much in the same way as craftsman seems to be important to this group of people, hacker was really important to me. And it was, I really cared a lot about well, you know, in common language, people are using it to mean a person that does illegal things with computers, but that we shouldn't be saying that. We should be calling, you know, computer criminals crackers instead, which is a word I haven't heard in some time used to mean that. But um, that was really something, a hill I was willing to die on then, that to preserve the meaning of this word hacker. And so I think what was going on in my mind then had a lot to do with what's going on in the minds of people who are defending the word craftsman now. And, you know, what I want to say is that it's not necessarily healthy to build your identity around a career or an activity. And we can get into why, but I think one of the effects that it has when people do that is it shuts out people who either... A, just want to do a job, do it well, and then go home and have other things that they get meaning from and not get all their meaning from their work. So it has the effect of abstracting things for those people. But also, like in a more subtle way, it has the effect of sort of claiming ownership over this identity and saying, well, it's only for this kind of person. And even if you know you're a Black disabled trans girl, uh, who does really want to have that identity too, well, it's not for you. You're not the right kind of person that that fits this picture. And that's where, you know, I think why it's such a meme for a certain group of people that SJWs are trying to invade the tech industry and ruin everything. You know, on some level, it's about, okay, competition for jobs. I think on another level, it's about like, I don't have a good word for these people, but you know, the, the male nerd that constructs their ident- entire identity. Chad. Chad. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so for Chad, uh, it's, you know, if this other group of people is allowed to have the same identity as me, they are taking something away from me. There is something I have that I really value. And if they are allowed to do it to the status of it, decreases because Um, if if i am programmer if that's my identity then programmer is me anyone who is a real programmer is like me and then you get all the the fuzzy associations in your head of what is like yeah Uh, and i think it ties into the this idea of merit i think our entire discussion around intelligence we could have subbed the word merit and arrives at the same conclusion it's something you can't define I think it's wielded as a sort of class hammer too. It's a it's a weapon of elitism to say, well, I represent these concepts. I have this identity. I have earned it, and these other people haven't earned it. 
Exactly right. And, you know, there's a question of, okay, why is the conversation even about earning it? Because, you know, I, I mentioned in my bio that I play pinball a lot. This is a fairly new interest of mine. And one of the reasons I like it is there really doesn't seem to be this whole, you know, there are people that are really into pinball, spend a lot of time on it. For some people, it even becomes their job. But it doesn't seem to me so far to be something that people construct their identity around. There isn't a word like hacker or, you know, craftsman or anything for pinball people. Some people use the word pinhead, but that's kind of funny because it's self-deprecating. It's also an insult. And I think that sort of reflects that people aren't taking it too seriously. So it's like, okay, like, I think the gatekeeping around identity that you see with craftsmen, hackers, nerds, all those words, it comes from a belief that, okay, you do have to earn this. Because like I said, you know, in pinball, nobody is there saying, well, you have to earn the right to, to play in tournaments with us. Like, it's just you play. And some people do better, some people do worse. But your scores don't get taken as a measure of how good you are as a person as, as a whole. Like, it's recognized that someone can be pretty bad at pinball but still be a really great person. And in tech, though, it's really hard to escape this idea of you have to earn the identity and if you don't measure up you're just not a very good person as in you're not smart enough you're not a hard worker enough and yeah like i think Coraline's totally right like merit gets used to mean this a lot and either way there's this idea of, well you have to pass a test to be allowed in this club and then if you pass Maybe you have to keep proving yourself over and over. But if you don't pass for sure, you're just, you know, you can be discarded. You can be ignored. And I listened to one of the recent episodes of Greater Than Code and the one with Chris Howard, where she was also talking about the, the craftsman debate. And she said something really great that I wanted to call back to, which was she was talking about how knitters don't get called makers, how there's already this word for people who make crafts uh, in terms of knitting, sewing, things that are traditionally coded as female. And she said, like, well, it's not that we want to be in your club. It's not that we want to be makers. It's that we're asking, well, why don't you want to be in our club? Why do you have to make up this new word, maker, to include people who make things with like electronics and stuff like that, and not include people who make things out of yarn or fabric? And I think that's exactly the right question to ask because it flips the script it's like i I think of you know all the push around trying to get girls or kids in general sometimes to get into stem and it smacks of well there's this mold and you have to fit yourself into it in order to get a job and therefore live under capitalism and yet you know why aren't we asking well why don't the chads of the world, the self-identified smart boys, want to join the girls' club? Like, who gets to define what the club is? Who gets to define the nature of the identities that get bound up with value and deserving material resources? And I think the the callback to something I said earlier, that's that's a culture war that we're seeing the beginnings of. That's a difference in values a difference in the way of seeing the world and people are becoming very vocal 
about pointing out the inequalities there and the injustice that's inherent in that value system. And we're seeing that play out more and more often. Completely. It's confusing because it's sort of two things that are going on at once that are interrelated. It's A, a culture war, exactly as you said. And B, there's a more concrete kind of war about access to material resources because programming is kind of the last good career that it's possible to enter without a whole lot of inherited privilege. If you think about, okay, well, if you want to go to law school, there's this whole set of things in terms of educational access and just outright money and kind of familiarity with a whole social code that you have to have to to go there. And then even if you do finish law school, there's so many people that want to be lawyers, you, you might not be able to get there. But tech, you know, you can theoretically enter with no formal schooling. You can be self-taught, although that's a much easier path for chads, people that are kind of, that fit all the privilege axes, uh, except maybe for class. So if you are a guy who is white and cis heterosexual abled, but you're not rich, then yes, you can probably bootstrap your way up into being a programmer. So that is a path that exists to a secure, well-paying, stable kind of middle-class job. And a lot of those other paths to other kinds of secure, stable, middle-class jobs have disappeared, except for people who were already going to be just fine. (laughs) Because if you have a trust fund, it doesn't really matter what kind of job you get. And so I think those two things feed into each other. You know, there's this culture war, but it's given extra steam by the fact that people see themselves as fighting amongst each other for like this one last shining thing that's a road to security in a really material way. So I like I don't think that should just be forgotten because, you know, in the eighties the whole hacker mythos existed, but it wasn't the one route to financial security in the way that it is now. And I think that's why the culture war around it has gotten so much more toxic. Well, and the the comparison to lawyers, you can take a little farther because like Coraline brought up earlier that the output of programmers is software and software is an artifact in the world, an artifact that changes the world, that that is an embodied cognition at the cultural level. Uh, So as programmers, we don't just impact ourselves. We are changing the world with what we build and put out there. So it's like if all the lawyers are from one economic class, then that works its way into policy. Absolutely. So you're you're completely right to point that out. It's It's about power as well. And one kind of power is kind of, I'm able to get enough resources for me to survive or for me and my dependents to survive. I can get enough money to pay for food and housing and health insurance and those things. So that's one kind of power. But as you say, there's another kind of power on the macro scale where, like, as Larry Lessig said, code is law. And if you're able to make code, you're able to exert power over other people and not just the kind of power that you need to use to get yourself to survive. So, yeah, I mean, I always think of how, you know, like just four years ago, and it seems a lot longer, like Gamergate was happening and it was kind of hard to explain to people outside tech. And, you know, why would people even care so much about, like, who gets to be in video games? Like, why is this a big deal? Like, 
it's a little bit understandable in terms of who gets to have a career in video games because like I was saying, people fighting over jobs, people fighting over material resources. But the terrible people in question didn't just seem to care about jobs. They seem to care about who even gets to play video games. Like much as with hackers or craftsmen, if you are in this scene and you're the wrong kind of person, you somehow damage the value of my identity. And that fight that seems so weird, even to people within tech at the time, has just gotten like played out on a bigger and bigger stage. And I think that's because it's a power struggle. And, you know, it's hard to find people really talking about it as what it is. It's happening more and more. But in the mainstream, when you run into people trying to do like STEM education, it still gets very much seen as like, well, there's this problem with girls thinking they can't do certain jobs and we just need to get to them and teach them positive thinking and then they'll believe in themselves and with the power of magical sparkly ponies, you know, everything will be good. But, you know, I think that's often unintentionally not seeing that there's this really intense power struggle that's going on that's to keep some people in and some people out. It strikes me that maybe something that's behind this is the idea that merit or or to your point, Tim, even identity is being treated as a zero-sum game. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think a belief in scarcity you know, underlies a lot of both the kind of conservative thinking that is, that's doing so much damage right now, and also it underlies this attitude of intelligence is everything and we need to have a doggy-dog world of people fighting to prove that they are more intelligent than the next person. The assumption is, well, there just isn't enough for everybody. And that enough can mean money, material resources. But I'm even more interested in like enough can mean love, admiration, being seen as good enough. And for how many people does that originate from like growing up in a family where like they felt like they had to fight, you know, to be worthy of love from the parents or adults in their life. And for how many of us are we like playing out that struggle on a bigger stage as adults? Um, and it's 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 hard to talk about these two things at once because there's this power struggle that's very real and concrete. And at the same time, I think it's like a lot of individuals having the same struggle at once, which is to see yourself as worthy, to see yourself as valuable. And the way that I know in my life, I've often tried to get that is by being valued for my intelligence and programming in a way that a lot of other jobs, a lot of other jobs don't work this way. But the people that are doing a lot of the gatekeeping and boundary enforcing and programming are trying to use programming as a route to being valued for their intelligence really being valued at all. And they see it as this exercise of pure intelligence in a way that, say, being a doctor or lawyer isn't, because in those jobs you have to use language and you have to work with other people. And there's this sort of dream, I think, that's getting clung to of programming as this pure uh, realm of ideas where the only thing that counts is your ability to reason about these ideas. and like that is such an attractive thing to a lot of people, including 
younger me because it feels like this chance to like, okay, there's a test and if you pass it, you win everything, this thing that you can't really even imagine of being seen as good enough, as worthy. And all you have to do is like solve these puzzles. It's almost like a video game. And I know I'm kind of switching back and forth here between sort of the Marxist uh, political economic way of looking at things of distribution of resources and switching back to the psychological realm. But that's why I wanted to talk about this topic, because I think both of those coexist and play into each other in this really complicated way that I haven't even teased out for myself yet. Yeah, they're definitely intertwined. What you were saying just a moment ago reminded me of XKCD, I think, has a T-shirt that you can get that says black T-shirt, white text. If my T-shirt is clever enough, maybe someone will finally love me. (laughs) And people wear it. And I think they wear it ironically just because it's sort of a funny take on the whole black T-shirt with code related saying on it. But I think it's way truer than anybody wants to admit who's wearing that T-shirt. Yes, that, you know, being clever is a path to love and acceptance. And really the whole thing people are attached to about words like craftsmen is the sense of belonging in a community that words like that convey. And the feeling that, well, if you just get enmeshed enough in this community, you will be accepted and feel like you are okay and you are enough. And I think that's why these words become so important to people. And well, couldn't you just say craftsperson and said, no, not for not to make these people happy because craftsman has this set of connotations that is sort of this promise of acceptance and fitting in someplace. And another word doesn't have that same connotation for people. Yeah, it certainly mimics my early experiences with nerd culture and with being the smart kid and whatnot. Like that was the first social currency I gained in school. And, you know, so that that was something I latched onto is, okay, great, I can use this. This can be my way of not being that awkward, weird dude that nobody wants to talk yeah. to. And like you, you bind that up and you build that into your identity. And I mean, I f- feel like I've done an okay job of clearing that out and not sticking to it. But I actually really in- am refreshed by the way you speak about your experience going through this where it's still with you it's still part of the you know your implicit bias in looking at the world and trying to just be aware of it and counteract it when you can uh that's something i'm looking out for as well that kind of reminds me of something that that happened to me recently my twitter bio used to refer to myself as a notorious sjw and credit the Breitbart article about me that that gave me that moniker because I thought it was funny and I thought it was like, oh yeah, that's me. And I changed my Twitter bio earlier this year because I realized I didn't want my identity to be something that was based on what people who hate me call me. (laughs) Yeah. And also I wanted to focus my Twitter bio on what I do, not on who I am. Because I think that's more the measure of me as a person is like, what am I doing with my life? What are the, that's an expression of like what I value, what I choose to spend my time on. And SJW doesn't fit into that mold. I happen to have some very strong feelings about social justice and I do work in that space, but that doesn't define me as a human being. And I think for too long I was using that as a shortcut and really not presenting my best self as a result. 
Yeah, that's a really great point about, you know, not wanting to define yourself by what the people who hate you say. And but, you know, it's like I don't think we can give up labels altogether. Like labels are useful. They're they're shortcuts, you know, they convey something about you without having to explain a whole lot. But yeah, there's you know, even with the label SJW, even though I think it's something that those of us who call ourselves SJW have all sort of adopted kind of ironically and and tried to reclaim from people that use it as an insult. It's like, okay, like when you sort of stop being self-aware about that, you can kind of go to a bad place. Like if you're calling yourself an SJW, but you're not continually asking yourself if your actions are really in the interest of social justice, especially when you're trying to do things in support of people and groups that you're not in, then yeah. And if you think of yourself as an SJW and you respond to criticism with like, oh, of course, I'm not doing something racist or something ableist or whatever, you know, I'm a social justice person. Like, how could I be doing that wrong? You know, that's the hazard of focusing too much on identity labels instead of what you do. And likewise, in programming, there's this way in which the identity labels that I've been talking about come with this promise of like, well, if I can just be accepted as having this identity, if it will just be acknowledged, then I won't have to work quite so hard to keep proving myself. And it just all, you know, when I think about it, it's just like, why can't we just have fun? Like, why can't we just have fun programming and not worry so much about, well, is this next thing I'm doing going to prove that I'm good enough? Like, is it even possible to disentangle, you know, the activity from our emotional needs that we're all trying to satisfy? The other day, I may have been on this show, Avdi said something about how he had always thought he needed to be valued for something he did. And at some point, he was in a situation where he was valued for being pretty. And that was like a relief to him, which, of mm-hmm. course, as a woman, I'm like, <laughs> why would that why be? Do you want to be valued for being pretty? God, would people actually look at me and listen? But for him, that was a new experience. And it was about, I don't have to keep pushing. I can just be me and be valued. Yes. Yeah. And I can see how that would, how being pretty could sort of fill that slot for someone who has not lived under the expectations that are, that everybody who's not a cis man has experienced at some point around appearance. And I, I feel like there, you know, there is a version of, intelligence that is more like being pretty than it is like writing code every day and my like archetype of that is the movie goodwill hunting uh which is basically about a guy coming from a working class background who's just this incredible genius who learns math on his own and discovers things that mathematicians in the field had not discovered and at some point in his life he gets discovered and then the process is kind of like okay well people notice that he is very smart and then he gets adulation and like uh reward for it and you know i think that's how a lot of people and again i'm not going to say i haven't been one of those people see being smart as they see it not as a process but as like okay well someday 
someone is going to look at me and see how smart I am, and they're going to say, well, this is an extremely smart person, and then everything's going to feel right. I'm going to feel good about myself. I'm going to feel comfortable. And I think, you know, we all, if we think about it with our rational minds, can see that that's sort of a childish kind of fantasy. But I think, like, so many people who do programming are tasting that, and that's why they have such a strong attachment to intelligence being a thing you need to measure and judge and and stack rank and grade people on. Because if you didn't do that, like maybe then they would lose the chance to have this goodwill hunting moment of being seen as a smart person. And to lose out on that is just like unacceptable to them. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that I talk so much about doing emotional work on yourself, doing therapy, doing whatever you can to become more fluent and understandable with your emotions and your emotional reactions is because that's where you have to start to dismantle these things so you you can you know unkink your own emotional flow so that you can react genuinely to things and so that you you're not having these weird identity crises you're not always searching for that group acceptance that's going to finally make you feel okay about yourself like cuz you you have to feel okay about yourself for yourself no one else can do it for you. And the the searching outside yourself for that is was where we run into all these tr- problems. Exactly. Like, I think what you just said really summarizes what I wanted to say on the show, that the struggles and the tension and the confusion that we're experiencing, a lot of it comes from people searching outside themselves for something that can't be found outside yourself. And of course, being an engineer, when I sort of come to a realization like that, I immediately jump to, well, what's the solution? And I want to send everybody to therapy, but that's not practical. Um, So I wonder, you know, what we can do to create a more emotionally healthy atmosphere. I mean, personally... Is there an app for that? Is there an app for that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you could gamify that. But yeah, like, I mean, I'm... I guess, leaving the industry because I've been trying to do that. I've been trying to sort of make the bubble around me an emotionally healthy place, like partly by speaking and trying to be vulnerable and and open about my struggles and self-doubt and times when things have been difficult for me. But I have felt like that's a lot of emotional labor that I can't do anymore, and so I'm searching for a career where I can just do a job and not have to do all that extra emotional labor. But for people that do want to stay and make things better, I wonder, you know, as individuals, there's not a lot we can do. So I wonder what we can do collectively to try to promote a more emotionally healthy atmosphere. Maybe when you get a job where you get to do like emotionally healthy things during the day, you'll be able to program some in your free time with people that you like. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. And because I like it, like, I don't want to give it up. And yeah, I think, you know, you create any change, first of all, by modeling it yourself. So I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying, I don't think it's a collective action we can take to help people be more emotionally healthy. But as you were describing, you know, being vulnerable yourself, talking about your own emotional struggles, I think that's a great way to start normalizing these types of discussions, as you say, modeling the behavior, making it okay for lots of people to do these things, to discuss these things is, I think it's the first step because you can't really 
address anything until people know what it is and people can talk about it and it can be discussed. And, and once everyone agrees it's a thing, then you can move forward with doing more with it. Yeah. And I want to call out that this is a lot easier for me to do because I'm seen as a man, uh, albeit a gender nonconforming man. But at this point in my life, it's not in question within most people's minds that I am a man. And therefore, I can talk about being vulnerable and sort of get points for it and not have that used to undermine my entire worth. And, you know, for women and for non binary people, it's not that easy to go and and say like here i'm going to talk about my deepest insecurities um, because that will get used against you so i try to you know take advantage of the privilege i have and and use it to undermine the system that gives me that privilege but i also don't want to encourage anybody to do anything that's going to be too risky for them so i think those of us who do have the privilege of being seen as men have more that much more of a responsibility to try to act as much as possible in a way that threatens toxic masculinity. Yeah, for sure. And that was one of the motivators for me starting down this whole path that I started when I began talking about your emotional API thing was that, you know, doing it as a man is important a, so that other men can see men doing it. And also as a way of modeling the behavior and also because it, that way to take that activity away from being considered, you know, women's work to, to, for emotional yes. labor to be something that only women are allowed to do or expected to do to sort of pull that back into a, a healthier balance. Yep, absolutely. It's the sort of broader equivalent of volunteering to do the dishes. Yeah, the, the heart dishes. Yes. Thank you for that. At the end of the show, we like to ask each panelist and then the guest for a reflection, a point that they found particularly pointy or that they'd like to expand on a bit. And this is the end of the show because like, I'm kind of full of feelings now and I need to go have a beer. (laughs) (laughs) I can go first. A question I asked early on and that we discussed, I think half of was this idea of a clash between cultures and a clash between competing sets of values. And I think we spent a lot of time looking at the values of the chads in our industry. And we didn't talk a lot about the the counter values. So um, something I want to think about is what is the alternative? What are the counter values that go against meritocracy? What's, what are we fighting for versus yeah, against? And I think there might be some value in making them concrete. And I think this might lead to a project of some sort. I um I was furiously taking some notes during the uh during the conversation. So um I want to think about what those values could look like and what a system that is opposed to the meritocracy or that replaces the meritocracy could look like and think about how to get us there and get us having those conversations. So thank you for that insight, Tim. That sounds like a great thing to take to the greater than code Slack. Greater than code is a listener-supported podcast. If you contribute to our Patreon in any amount, like a dollar once is fine. Then you get an invitation to the Greater Than Code Slack channel, which is really fun, and we can discuss that there. I do have a reflection. My reflection it starts with a book recommendation. There's this book, Finite and Infinite Games, by James Cars, that I just finished. And you can get a PDF free online if you Google Finite and Infinite Games PDF. And it talks about 
the difference between the infinite game, which is life, which is everybody wins the more people play, the one we want to invite everyone in, versus the finite game where you win titles and acclaim. And you might achieve immortality by being remembered. And it feeds into the scarcity versus plenty thing. And some of the things we talked about, I feel like there's a conflict between the need to be right versus the need to move toward truth. Never reach truth. If you think you've got there, you're wrong. Kind of like meritocracy. That book really resonated with the, the discussion here today. And I really like playing the infinite game. But it helps to be able to understand that some people are in the finite one. I think my reflection is uh, you spoke a lot about the sort of need that people, the emotional need people have to belong to various groups, programming in particular, and how it, it brings you so much identity and so much need and how it's this proxy for loving yourself. And that's it's something I've been aware of, but discussing it now has brought it sort of and much more vividly into my mind. And so I'm going to be thinking about that a lot more and about things that we can do to counteract that, to help people get into healthier spaces so that that makes the entire culture healthier. Cool. Well, I'll give a recommendation and a reflection. So the recommendation is for music for the album Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen, which uh, strangely enough is what set off this whole line of thoughts for me. And a piece of it that I didn't really get to talking about was like the parallel that exists in my mind that maybe I'll write down some time because it might or might not be obvious between the stuff that Bruce Springsteen was writing about in 1980 about the American dream and people's disappointments with it, the the promise that people got given, that even I got given growing up in the 80s, that you know if you worked hard, you will succeed. And that's sort of in a broad scale with a sort of a variety of different jobs people can have. And this promise of meritocracy of if you work hard, specifically within programming, because we've realized it kind of doesn't work <laughs> elsewhere, uh, but if you work hard within that one field, you will be rewarded and you will succeed, and the disappointment that happens when you realize that's not true or you start realizing it. So there's that. And then my reflection, I think, is uh, Coraline pointed out really well the issue of clashing cultures and clashing values and the power struggle that comes from that. And I'll be thinking about, like, how to talk about both that and the inner struggle to sort of feel good about yourself at the same time without kind of cheapening either narrative because I think the inner struggle that makes people reach out for value systems and political ideologies that kind of cater to people that are that kind of have a don't have a strong sense of self yet um, and how do we kind of reach out to the people who are getting taken in by the Jordan Petersons of the world and say to them, like, hey, there's actually an alternative that feels better than that. Thank you so much, Tam. This has been a, a great conversation. We're really just thrilled to have had you on the show and uh, really looking forward to seeing um, your continued adventures as you make this big change in your life. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. It's been really great. It's I've really enjoyed this conversation. In the interest of how can people who want to learn more get in touch with you, I've got a question. Your Twitter handle, is it fat neckbeard guy or fat neck beard guy? Uh, it's the first one. And the reason I have that handle is that during Gamergate, I had people coming at me calling me fat and a neckbeard. And these were sort of the two 
things they had, I think, that they could tell from looking at me. I didn't actually have a neck beard at the time, but anyway. Um, so I thought, okay, well, if I put this in my username, it sort of takes it away from them as things they can use against me. So I'm just going to own those labels. And I did, and I and it stuck. So um, right now... <laughs> My Twitter is protected for reasons that are uh, hopefully temporary and will uh, I really kind of miss being able to tell everybody that they're wrong on the internet instead of just my followers. So uh, I'll hopefully have a public Twitter again soon. But in the meantime, my blog is at tim.dreamwith.org. So when I have something public to share, it goes on there. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 83 of Greater Than Code, which is also Greater Than Goats. See you next week. <laughs>